You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast. Welcome in, everyone. I'm your host on this on this episode, Dr. Mike Brazier, and we're going to be following up on a recent episode with Dr. Scott Stevens, where we're going to learn about habitat conditions in a variety of other locations. Scott obviously spoke with us sort of big picture about the prairies, uh, mostly of Canada. We touched a little bit on the Dakotas and uh, U.S. side of things as well. But we have an opportunity here today. Uh, I'm on location at Ducks Unlimited's 86th National Convention in Las Vegas. And I think I even mentioned in that previous episode with Scott that I was going to try to corral a couple of folks while I was here and ask them for some updates on habitat conditions in the areas where they work based on their personal observations and experiences. Uh, Scott admitted that he had not gotten out across much of the prairie. So we have an opportunity here today to meet with uh, Brian Hepworth with Ducks Unlimited Canada. He's going to fill us in on a bit more details on what's happening in Saskatchewan. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. 
You are a first-time guest, and so because of that, we're going to have you introduce yourself. I'll, I'll kind of do the, the intro, at least here, of your position. You work for Ducks Unlimited Canada. You're the Director of Regional Operations for the Prairie and Boreal. And if people had been listening for a long time and paying attention to titles that we introduced for various folks, they might recognize that title as one previously held by Dr. Scott Stevens. He moved into another position here a year or so ago. You're now that director of regional operations position for that important, those two important geographies. So I don't necessarily need you to go through all of what you do. We're going to try to keep this, this episode short. We'll have you back some other time to talk about some important habitat work and programs that DU Canada and you are delivering. But for to introduce yourself to our audience, tell us how long have you been with DU Canada? Where'd you grow up? And kind of where are you now? And how long have you been in Saskatchewan? Well, I'm a Saskatchewan boy. I was actually born in Manitoba, but moved to Saskatchewan at a very young age and, and lived in Saskatchewan my entire life. So um, in finished university in December of 1990 and started with Ducks Unlimited in February of 1991. Oh, and wow. so uh, I've been with the company 30, just over 32 years now. I've uh, done most things you can do in the field all the way up from the ground field work. Um, now, the last 10 years, I've been manager of provincial operations in Saskatchewan. And as of January this year, I'm director of regional operations. So it's kind of like getting your your dream job right out of university. So I was, couldn't be happier with what my career's looked like. That's amazing. Been in, you've worked in Saskatchewan your entire DU Canada career? I have. I've had wow. the pleasure of doing that. So I'm a consummate salesman of Saskatchewan, but now it's of the Prairie region of Canada. So I'm pleasure. it's a pleasure to do that. Outstanding. Where in Saskatchewan do you live? I live right in Regina, Saskatchewan. So. Okay. So kind of that south, southern, southeastern portion. South right? central, yeah. South, south central. central. Okay. The heart of some of the best breeding duck landscapes that we have, right? Absolutely. Can't get any better than that. Outstanding. Uh, we do want to take a few minutes here. We'll keep this one brief because we're going to package this with a couple of short episodes or short discussions with Dr. Fritz Reed also about some other important waterfowl geographies, get habitat updates on those areas. Uh, but yeah, so from your perspective in Saskatchewan, and you can talk about Southern Manitoba as well, if you've been, if you've traveled over there here lately, or even into Southern Alberta, give us as much of a, of a kind of update or perspective from the way you're, you're seeing it, you've heard about it, um, on habitat conditions and how they're unfolding or have unfolded in the prairies of Canada this year. Sounds good. I'm going to start from left to right, and I'm going to go from Alberta. And I had the pleasure of being in Alberta at the beginning of May and, and to sort of observe some field conditions there, and it was quite dry. Um, unseasonably warm and lots of smoke in the area due to forest fires up north, and quite dry in central Alberta as well. So most of Alberta is quite dry. They've had at least two years of drought sort of conditions, and, and that continues uh, uh, without with a bit of lack of snow they had and a very quick runoff they had this year. So not a lot of surface water there, so probably below average conditions. As you move into Saskatchewan, from the Alberta-Saskatchewan border, it starts to improve a little bit, and by the time you get to Saskatoon, if you drew a line in central Saskatchewan from Saskatoon to Regina, everything to the east of there is much better conditions, and to the west, it's drying off quite a bit. So as you move to the east, uh, particularly southeast Saskatchewan and southwest Manitoba, very good conditions. I had traveled to Manitoba and you know observed from the airplane the great conditions between Regina and, and Winnipeg, so great runoff in that area. So it's, it's looking much better than it did, consistent with what you've been seeing in the Dakotas 
as a result of late winter snowstorms that we've had. And also more, more recently, we've had some really great rain events that have put good soil moisture for the producers, but also maintaining the wetland conditions that we had there. I want to talk about some of those rain events here a little bit more. Uh, where, How widespread were those? Is it certain areas of the region that you described that it fell in more than others? Just kind of give us an understanding of the coverage of those rain events. Yeah, surprisingly, it was almost east of that line again. It's oh, okay. that Regina line and, and to the east and southeast Saskatchewan got the bulk of it. And it actually went up through the Yorkton area as well. So I got pictures. Well, I've been here at the convention the other day from, from Regina and uh, there's flooded underpasses and there's flooded vehicles on the street. So they had a very quick, fast downpour, uh, thunder shower kind of event and, and a lot of precipitation that came with that. So exciting if you're a waterfowl guy, probably not that exciting if your car got flooded, I guess. Yeah, and from the you mentioned flying from Saskatchewan to Manitoba, did you see a lot of sheet water, a lot of shallow, ephemeral, temporary ponds? We know those are so important early in the breeding season, right? I was absolutely traveling at the best time. So it was right as runoff was happening and there was a lot of sheet water and a lot of surface and water on the move as well. So of course, as drainage happens and those things across the landscape, but it did have a, a really nice mosaic of wetlands. And then from Alberta, kind of east to Manitoba, how would you characterize conditions this year to what we may have seen last year? We know if you would go back to 2021, you would say it's vastly improved because 2021 was just like super dry. Last year, we had a little bit of relief and things improved a little bit. I want to I want to believe that things might be a little bit better even this year, but what would how would you describe that across that landscape? I think that's pretty accurate. So 2021 was a year of, of extreme drought, and we had a lot of producers without water, um, even for their cattle operations. So we were they were in a pretty tight situation from a wetland perspective and a water water source for their cattle. So 22 was a little bit better, and as we moved through, I looked at some aerial photography or satellite imagery from 22, and actually the conditions in southeast Saskatchewan had recovered significantly. I spent some time in southeast Saskatchewan, and it was almost like spring runoff. There was sheet water, class one and two wetlands that were full of water just in, I think it was mid-July. And so those conditions sort of started to rebound in 22 and now improved as, as a little bit on top of that in 23. So looking for good conditions this year, I think. So, And you may be expecting a little better production this year than last year based on kind of what you're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, we're looking at probably closer to average conditions in that east. Of east of that line, Saskatoon, Regina, and and uh, not no abundant water, but be, much better than the last two years for sure. Well, that's going to make a lot of people happy to hear that, and we'll keep our fingers crossed. We we heard this morning from George Dunklin that he described. We can talk even if we had things perfectly dialed in on an understanding of what breeding populations were like and production is going to look like. Still doesn't mean things are going to unfold perfectly for you in your in your duck blind, right? There's a whole lot of things that have to come together between now and then, and then once once you get into the hunting season. But we're off to a, a better start than we were a few years ago. I did want to ask you here. We're going to keep this short. We'll close up here in just a minute. Um, I want to ask you about any notable observations of waterfowl in the region. Is nearly impossible question to answer in terms of, of describing abundances or relative abundances compared to what you've seen in past years. But I will just ask any notable observations on the ducks or geese that you're seeing in the area right now. Yeah, so what I did see, I, I spent a fair bit of time in the in the parks in Regina, and, and the, there's a fair number of Canada geese, and they were pretty much on schedule. So middle of May, there was goslings on the lake there, so it seems to be a pretty 
pretty close to normal conditions there and, and did see the first ducklings before I left to come to the convention oh, that's as nice. well. So, mallards yeah. or? Uh, yes, they All were right. mallards. They were yeah, I'm just trying to think. Nesters, I, I so. want to be, yeah. <laughs> there was only a couple, so it was only three or four. So they obviously didn't do quite as well as yeah. they had hoped when they initiated their nest. But yeah, quite a few broods of goslings and, and a few ducks around. So Excellent. good to see. And so then from a habitat standpoint, what do we need to be hoping for from this point, early June, June 2nd, I think June 3rd actually is our date right now. What do we need to ha- happen between now and August, let's say, to ensure that we we have you know great production or that the production potential of the ducks that are there is um, is at pretty high levels? Yeah, I think we well hope, we're hoping for some of those rain events to continue and maintain the wetlands that are there as wetlands dry out and the broods need to move across the landscape. There's a risk to them to them and the, and the brood themselves. So um, you know those frequent rain showers that keep the the ponds full are are very good. And the less they have to walk, the more healthy they'll be at the end of the day. So, And that's probably also important for setting up conditions for next year even, right? Absolutely, yeah. So soil moisture going into the fall will be will be well received. I mean, we really hope for that and get that frost seal that I think Scott talked about. So, you know, I think it's really important that those conditions continue. And so far, the pattern is it's, um, you know, regular precipitation events, thunder showers and that sort of thing. Um, a little concerned about high winds and high temperatures, mm. but um, that'll be July and August. We'll have to figure it and see what happens. And that's just because it can dry things out so quickly when Very you have high quick. temperatures and high winds. High winds, when you get a 50 kilometer an hour or 70 kilometer an hour wind, it can dry things out very quickly. So, Brian, that's going to wrap it up for us today. Greatly appreciate you spending your time with us, and I guarantee you this won't be the last time that we we have you on the podcast. We'll probably connect with you later in the summer, maybe early fall, and find out exactly how those weather conditions have unfolded. So we look forward to catching up with you then. My pleasure. Look forward to it. Thanks, Brian. Continuing our discussion from different on habitat conditions from different regions here across North America, still at Ducks Unlimited's National Convention. I'm sitting down with Dr. Fritz Reed, uh, who's been a, a re- repeat guest on the podcast. Fritz, great to have you back. Great to be here, Mike. And we want to talk with you about three regions that are of continental importance to waterfowl populations, breeding waterfowl, certainly this time of year. And people are super excited about to get these updates. We've had some optimistic reports on how habitat conditions in the prairies are a little bit better this year than they were last year. And so now we want to talk about some of the other regions that are of of importance for breeding waterfowl, some highly important from a local geography standpoint. There are three areas that you're considered and are an expert in, California Central Valley. Uh, and you can talk about some of the other Intermountain West areas as well, actually, now that I, I think about it. And the boreal forest of Canada and then Alaska. All three of those areas are critical for breeding duck production in the Pacific Flyway. They certainly uh, provide ducks for some of the other flyways as well, but Pacific Flyway folks would be keenly interested in this conversation. You bet. So let's start out with California. That's where you live. That's where you live. How how long have you lived in California? 33 years. So you've seen quite a few, quite a bit of variation in habitat conditions, right? But there is a stark difference between 
what we have now and what we had just a year ago. And we were under severe, severe drought. Um, and what had happened back in the 80s, uh, initial work was started out, uh, Bob McClandris did work on breeding mallards in California. And uh, what he found after a major flood in 1983, it wiped out a bunch of the mammalian predators. And so you had about three or four years of really significant nesting success after these massive floods. Now, at that time, there were about 750, 800,000 breeding mallards in California. We fell below 180,000 uh, breeding mallards in California this last year. Wow. So, I mean, it was a horrendous, horrendous, significant decline. And that was, that that drop that you talked about, that number was breeding population last year in 2022. And there wasn't much production in 2022 either, it, right? Exactly. There and locally. That, and that's the point. Yeah, that's the point. And, uh, and, and there were a number of places like the Butte Sink, um, like parts of, of the Sacramento Valley, where they rely on mallards as one of their significant harvest birds. And, you know, they were way, way down. Um, still had, because of the drought, if you had water on the landscape, you know, you got other species uh, from the north, but but uh, the, the breeding birds were way, way down. And it, was, it wasn't simply mallards. I mean, gadwall were down, cinnamon teal were down. So now people are very excited. As, as I think most people have heard, we had significant snowpack, significant rainfall. Uh, we, we got actually too much water in the south end of, of the Tulare Basin. Uh, there's massive floodings going on there. And, and in fact, we probably will see uh, a paucity of breeding in the far south simply because it, it, it's flooding out on, on nesting sites. But where we see really good situations the Soon Marsh has always been a great place for breeding mallards. And when you get a really wet winter, wet spring, like we have this year, it, it tends to have uh, brackish waters, which are very good for breeding gadwall, for mallards. And, uh, and so we're anticipating a Sassoon Marsh should be quite good in, in the potential for, for breeding areas there. Uh, the Sac Valley, uh, where you have any kind of nest cover, there's plenty of water areas still out there. Uh, birds got an early jump on the potential for breeding. I mean, there, there were birds nesting uh, in February, um, and, and not only for mallards, gadwall, but for wood ducks. Uh, should be excellent, excellent for wood ducks. We, we did see uh, a, a decline in, in wood ducks over that drought period for, for similar reasons, really more, more in chick and brood survival uh, than, than, in, than in nesting survival. So people are, are having great hope um, that we're going to see some some good little uptick this year, but especially next year and the year after. So kind of put this in context, we're talking about breeding waterfowl in California, and most folks east of the Rockies aren't going to associate California with breeding waterfowl landscape unless they've listened to past episodes of the podcast, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Read magazine articles, that kind of stuff. But the, the uninitiated in some of this conversation about these important local 
geographies for breeding waterfowl. Talk about that, the importance of California, different regions there for producing ducks locally that end up in the bag of hunters. How important is that for hunters in, the, in California? It's been well understood that uh, Oregon, Nevada, and California produce somewhere between 70 to 50% of the mallards in the harvest for California. And so as a local breeding bird, that's significant. And it's especially important in certain regions like the Northeast part of the state, uh, local breeding mallards, very, very important. The the heart of the Butte Sink, which is in, in, the, in the part of the uh, Sacramento Valley, uh, these are some of the really very impressive duck clubs, Gray Lodge State Wildlife Area, Mallards, Gadwall that are locally produced, very, very important. We have a new employee who's been working with us for about a year, maybe not quite a year, Matt Harrison. He's in our communication department. Did you happen to, do you yeah. have an opportunity yeah. to meet Matt? Yeah. Great, great guy. He was out there a couple of weeks ago, I think, yeah. and he went to Gray, if I'm not mistaken, went to Gray Lodge and he was texting me and kind of communicating back with me. He was blown away by what he had seen, what, what he was seeing there. He grew up in Mississippi. I don't, that might've been his first time in California. I don't know that to be, to be certain, but it was obviously the first time he had made the connection about California being an important breeding landscape for waterfowl. He was blown away. It was a great year for him to go and experience for the Abs- first time, right? Absolutely, yeah, you bet, you yeah, bet. And, and so then talk about, you mentioned it earlier, the southern portion of, uh, I guess, the, is it still, still considered the California Central Valley down mm-hmm. there around mm-hmm. Tulare Lake? Talk about the flooding that happened. I mean, maybe even just a thumbnail sketch of the history of, of that area and what right. has happened this year. So historically, there there are uh, nine different basins down in the Tulare, which is the terminus, the southern end of, of the San Joaquin Valley. And... Uh, uh, they overlap so that so that as you get more flooding, more flooding, it, it basically collapses into one huge big lake area. But but they're nine individual basins, and historically those were among the the largest lakes west of the Mississippi. And we the way that we think that hydrologically those systems functioned is you got big wet years as we had this last year. And these lakes would flood, and they would stay flooded for four, five, six years. And birds uh, like uh, ruddy ducks, gadwall, mallards would breed in these areas. And and also, it would it was very important apparently for uh, molt. Uh, post-breeding uh, birds from the arid west would molt in the in these regions. Now, the scary thing that we are a little bit worried about is that it's an area known to have botulism. And so when you get these wet flooded areas, we're probably going to lose some birds this summer as 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 the temperatures heat up, the botulinum is out, uh, there's a mortality of invertebrates and or fish, and then boom, you start seeing mortality of ducks. Um, the other thing we're, we're a little bit worried about is because some of the birds will be stressed, will we see high path avian influenza down in this region? We don't know, yeah. but, but you know, people will have their eyes out for that. Historically, there's also been some challenges in that 
there's natural concentrations of arsenic, uh, uh, of uh, selenium, selenium and, and that potentially can be a problem. In these initially flooded years, it generally isn't. But once you get into year five, year six, it's concentrating down, you get some kind of toxic pools, then that can be a problem. So what has been the land use activity in that area like more, more recently? Am I- Agriculture, is that right, or am I thinking about a different area? Absolutely agriculture. I mean, it is some of the best cotton ground outside of Egypt. I mean, the quality of cotton that comes out of that area is just phenomenal. And as more and more perennial crops have been planted in California, um, there's been almonds, pistachios, uh, th- those two have, have been in those areas. But with the massive floodings that are going on, you know, there's not going to be any crops in a lot of those fields. Well, that was my, my, what I was wondering is it's flooded out the areas that were being used for agricultural production. And it's, there's not a natural outlet or even a, an engineered outlet to that basin? Absolutely. These are closed basins. And it, it really it really speaks to the fact that it probably is a good use of that area that when you get these massive floods, you yeah. let these areas flood and and you leave them flooded for you know two, three years, whatever. But it also speaks in terms of the agricultural use that there should be sponsorship of annual crops mm. because you can determine, you know, based on drought or As floods. opposed to almonds or perennial it, crops that exa- you're talking about in it, that regard. Exactly. Yeah. Now, now, the other thing that, that is used down there is grazing. There's dairies, there's grazing. Well, you can move the cattle out so so that it, as, a, as, a, as a use of farm ground, uh, it, it goes well with, with, uh, with, with waterfowl in that you've got the, the native grasses, you can have breeding a Occurring out on those sites, uh, when you get those big flood events, you can you can move the animals out of there. Uh, what, what do we expect in terms of how that may affect waterfowl distributions come fall and winter? I mean, that's going to be some great habitat down there, I would imagine. And it, what, Ab- are we, what are we expecting? Absolutely, and it, and it and it has far greater influence than just the local Tulare Basin. Because what's happened as Tulare's been dry for multiple years, the terminus in the Central Valley really has been uh, the grasslands. San Joaquin Valley. Uh, San Joaquin Valley. That was the terminus. Now you have viable habitat to the south. And in fact, historically, when hunters talked about hunting in the grasslands in January, they talked about all these new pintails. Mm. Well, these new pintails probably were pintails that had moved in south into Tulare and were in fact starting to move north. Wow. This is the same way Arkansas talks about, about pintails migrating back north from Louisiana once you get to about January. Absolutely. Very, very similar situation. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. But before we leave the Central Valley, I will, I will also point out that another area that we're seeing great potential this year is in the foothills. Mm-hmm. When we get wet years like this, a lot of rainfall, uh, the the ponds, uh, the grasses come up, and really for 
for wood ducks, for mallards, for gaddies, uh, great situations there. And I actually saw a bunch of uh, buffleheads ringnecks. Uh, they're a little higher elevation. They're more like three, 4,000 foot in the Sierras, but uh, lots of birds that, that seem to be using those areas. So State and federal management areas and refuges that have plenty of water for all of their summer wetland management and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. You know, there, there was... Everybody got any water they wanted. And so uh, both for brood habitat and for spring irrigation so that hopefully the, the food crops are going to be unbelievable this fall. Um, so, and, and it, it is, it's a great year for state and federal areas to have provided uh, more wet areas, not simply for breeding ducks, but breeding ibis and 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 migrating shorebirds, et cetera. So it really great conditions, especially as you look at, at, at a couple of back-to-back drought years. It was really depressing there. The other big story from last year in the Central Valley of California was the decline in planted rice agriculture. I think it was down over 50%, maybe, because of all of the water restriction, curtailment of irrigation water. That's obviously changed as a result of the significant rain and, and mountain snow that fell this year. What's your understanding of the expectation or even observations of planted rice in the Central Valley this year? Are we back up to that 500,000-ish acre mark? The, the one challenge is that because of all the flooding, some of the farmers couldn't get water off of wow. some of these areas. And, and you reach a point, it's kind of the June 1 date. If, if, if you can't pull water off by June 1 and have planted your field, you're kind of getting too late to be able to have an effective crop and, 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 and assure yourself you're, you're, you're going to be getting off. The good news is most of our, our farmers were able to get get crops in, et cetera. But last year and the, and the year before, one of the real challenges was not only did they not plant uh, rice, but they disked all the weeds in so that it was just black soil. And uh, so even when we got the floods at the end of December into January, there's no food from 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 uh, weed seeds out there. So it it was a it was a tough way to go. Wow. Um, yeah. Well, it's an absolutely spectacular. Maybe, I don't know if once in a lifetime is an exaggeration, but it's certainly uh, a very, very anomalous turnaround from last year to this year, right? Absolutely. Have, do, you, do you recall a more, a more stark turnaround from one year to the next in your 33 years of being in California? Uh, well, be- 83, before I got there, I, 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 I've seen the pictures, I've, I've heard folks talk about it, that probably was even more amazing but 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 it's close to to what we have now but this is this is the big one and and you know the the damage to infrastructure that that those floods had has been pretty severe i mean there's lots of places where you know connecting waterways and and redeveloping conveyance ditches has had to occur because they got wiped out 
that gives me a great idea to uh, connect with somebody like Virginia. Virginia gets here a little bit later on and talk with her about how those kind of flood events have either challenged some of our habitat delivery activities or given us additional opportunities for helping uh, deliver solutions to some of those problems. Absolutely, and and what I'd recommend is you get a chance to talk to Virginia and and one of our uh, key engineers yeah. because those guys are especially are going to be able to give you stories of, of uh, you know, strange situations where, you know, they, they had to dump rock into areas so it didn't destroy a bunch of work that, we, that was ongoing. So, yeah, some, some pretty wild times for sure. Fritz, we're going to take a break right here and hear from a couple of our sponsors. We'll come back. We want to talk with you about a few other areas, uh, the Intermountain West. We'll get, get some input from you on what you know there. Then, of course, the, uh, the Boreal Forest and Alaska. Stick with us, Fritz. You bet. everyone we're here with Fritz Reed Ducks Unlimited out in uh, out in California we're chatting with Fritz on location here at Ducks Unlimited's National Convention. We just got finished talking about how there was a dramatic turnaround in habitat conditions in, in California Central Valley. Now we want to move into the Intermountain West and there's certainly quite a few areas across that vast geography that are incredibly valuable for local production of waterfowl. What can you tell us big picture about that Intermountain West landscape? Kind of maybe break it down at least let's cover what we know about Klamath, and then maybe 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 give us a bit of a highlight of what you know about sort of the Salt Lake, Great Salt Lake area. Sure. One of the unfortunate things, as you looked at the tracks of those storms coming in, and we had uh, a dozen, you know, major uh, events that came through. And one of the unfortunate things is that most of those storms track south of the Klamath Basin. And, and it's not just Klamath, it's Summer Lake, it, it's Malheur. So that, that Oregon complex really missed out on, 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 on a bunch of the moisture. Um, we know that when there's great snowpack around the Klamath Basin, those are, are big years for uh, spring habitats and, and breeding birds uh, in that area. And, and it just it, it wasn't as positive as what we saw in the Central Valley. Now, the good news is it's improved, and there are areas that have water in uh, the uh, Southern Oregon, Northern, Northeast California region, but it's just not quite as good as, as, as one would have hoped. In, in contrast, as we look over at, uh, at uh, Great Salt Lake, most of the areas there were 150 to 200% norm of snowpack. So better situations. And the tributaries that feed uh, the Great Salt Lake uh, have more water, are, are, are probably going to bring the lake up about three to four feet. Um, so uh, considering it was really in rough, rough shape coming into the year, it's really some positive news. Now, 
for the long term, we're going to need more years of wetness. But but certainly for the short term, very very positive. And and it'll be positive for breeding for for redheads for uh, cinnamon teal around Great Bear Lake around, around the Great Bear River and some of the duck clubs around there. So going back to sort of the Klamath Basin. Do we expect, I, th- I think last year, which refuge was it that went dry for the first time in its history? Uh, was it Lower Klamath? Lower Klamath, Lower Klamath. Do we expect to have water for that refuge there, this year? There'll be some. We still need more water and and certainly trying a number of different opportunities. Uh, there's Tule Lake Refuge. Tule Lake Refuge has water uh, um that is used partly for the sucker fish, which are an endangered fish species. But uh, Docs is working with the Federal Refuge, working with some of the indigenous people up there, working with the farmers to provide water for fish habitat and at the same time get water shallowly flooded for waterfowl so that uh, you know both those groups can benefit. And so that's one of the hopes we have. And certainly uh, uh, where there's water available, you see a lot of bird usage. So it sounds like across all of that California landscape that's important for waterfowl, many portions of the Intermountain West, maybe all portions of the Intermountain West, maybe, you know, perhaps give or take a few isolated areas are better off this year than they were last year. Absolutely. But there are still some areas, Klamath Basin being the, the prime example that even this year, are, have not seen a substantial improvement. Maybe right. better, but not substantial. And then Great Salt Lake, notably better, but still long-term concerns and needs for more moisture, more innovative conservation successes. A- absolutely. Yeah, that's a good description. Uh, Fritz, let's move north a little bit. You Get bet. into the boreal forest. You're, uh, it's a landscape where you've made enormous contributions across your career here at National uh, Convention. You were honored for your years of service to Ducks Unlimited. Team and, effort, team and, effort. And, and you're always quick to say that, and, and you're right, and you're right. Um, but the, the recognition that you get is certainly deserved, and we thank you for that. So talk about that landscape. It's special to you. You've developed strong relationship w- relationships with those partners that make up that team. And so I know as conditions unfold um, or as they go up and down, of course, it's a much more stable landscape. We know that. You keep a close eye on it. What have you seen over the past year and how has that set us up for great conditions in some lands, in some portions, maybe more challenging conditions in others? Sure. So I'm going to concentrate on the Western Boreal. What we saw this spring was that the Southern Boreal tended to dry out fairly rapidly. There was good uh, snowpack early. There was good runoff. There looked really good conditions for waterfowl, but then there was no rain and, and things dried up really fast. And you saw days of really severe winds that were drying winds. And so what happened was, uh, there were some very, very severe fires uh, in northern Alberta and uh, burned up some pretty big chunks of ground. Uh, they were fast fires. They were hot fires. Certainly burned up a lot of critters. Um, and that's unfortunate. Uh, on the other hand, uh, boreal systems are driven by fire. And so 
rather than seeing uh, ancient forests in the boreal forest, they're, they're relatively new forests because they burn up a lot. And so, uh, you know, there were fires, but they'll release nutrients so that we'll expect in those areas uh, a lot of uh, grasses, a lot of forbs. So next year in some of those fire areas should be pretty good for waterfowl, actually. What would be considered an old tree in the boreal forest, given your comment about how prone that landscape is to fire? 40 to 60 years. 40 to 60 years. So yeah, that's, yeah. Pretty, that's a pretty short return frequency for fires. It is. Know, it is. And, and it's why, you know, the forest industries in, in that industrial forest area, they're trying to mimic their cuts with fire-like activities. And it, and it and you know that's a good strategy uh, to go forward on. Yeah, absolutely. So n- then, as you move further north, there's some areas that stayed cooler, uh, did not get those those winds, etc. Pretty much uh, the 60th parallel is is uh, is the northwest ter- northwest and Yukon territories, and that's kind of a good line north of there. It stayed cold. It stayed uh, frozen, uh, and so. It opened up a little bit later than normal. Not as late as the last year was super late in when stuff opened up. And I think if you look at the aerial surveys last year, we missed a lot of birds. We missed a lot of birds because there it, it was kind of in between when uh, the birds arrived. This year, I think it it, it would we class it as more of a normal year for the boreal. And uh, and it was wet. They had good snowpack. So we're anticipating just listening to uh, biologists up in the north, uh, good conditions for widgeon, for green wings, for uh, scop, for ringneck ducks. So hopefully we'll see. And, and, and we're really interested in seeing the, the bird numbers in the aerial surveys this year for the boreal. Because uh, after several years of what looked like good conditions, numbers were way off and and it just didn't make sense. So my guess is we're gonna see uh, improved numbers and, and, and improved hopefully for Northern Pintail. Yeah, for sure. I know pretty much everyone across North America would be hoping yeah, for that, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Anything else notable about the boreal forest? I don't know how good a handle you have on how things are in the eastern boreal. It's very wet. It's very wet even in the southern boreal in Ontario and Quebec. So it it should be good for mallards and black ducks uh, to the east. Now, in Alaska, it's very early for Alaska, but uh, they had a really extensive snowpack across Alaska. There, if, if you look at the drought maps uh, for Alaska, there are no areas that are shown even as dry this hmm. year. Wow. It's going to be a very, very wet year, uh, both interior and out in the YK Delta. So people are optimistic. Should be a good year. Hopefully it's not too wet. Uh, uh, but it was a late spring. So we anticipate that Breeding will be two to three weeks later than normal. I can add a little bit to that. 
I will actually, by the time this episode airs, I will be on the YK Delta. Oh, wonderful. We'll have been, or we'll have returned from uh, a short trip to the YK Delta to assist with some data collection out in the field, visit with some researchers and some students there. Great. It'll be my first ever trip to the YK Delta. So oh, I, wonderful. I'm super excited about it. I have spoken with Dr. Dave Coons. I'm going at his invitation. And he was he was noting to me that it was a late spring uh, out there as well. And But he said, as of recent, they're noting a pretty heavy breeding effort. So he's pretty excited about that. Excellent. Last year, I think that particular research site uh, was hit by by HPAI, avian influenza, pretty bad, maybe some of the brant and perhaps some of the other species. And so we're obviously hoping that we're not going to see that type of similar outbreak. Maybe the birds that returned this year had been exposed to it and have those antibodies as we've heard about and talked about on previous episodes. Now, what happens with the juvenile birds as they as they hatch and hit the ground and have those naive immune systems? We'll just have to wait and see. But I'll be there at a time when I think the birds are still nesting. I don't think any of the goslings or ducklings will have hatched by then, but certainly looking forward uh, to that. Oh, absolutely. That's wonderful. I'll take lots of pictures. <laughs> good, good. Um, any, anything else, Fritz, uh, you know, across that landscape? Have we missed an area or any other um, any other, other things that you've heard? The, the only other thing that I, I'd like to bring up, I, I did hear that for the first time in 30-plus years, La Perouse Bay is flooded out. And, oh, really? And uh, they were unable to get in there for field season. Now, La Perouse or Carrick Lake or both? Carrick, Carrick, Carrick. Okay, yeah, okay. Carrick. And that, of course, is a world-renowned research station, especially for white geese and white fronts, but uh, but. For eiders, you know, for, uh, for waterfowl, it's it's a it's a huge area. Yeah, I I saw that email as well. Uh, Dr. Mitch Wiegman, University yep. of Saskatchewan, our endowed Ducks Unlimited Canada endowed chair there at University of Saskatchewan was they, their uh, summer field crew was going to try to get in there, and and it was that's the that's the. They were too late. Everything had already thawed, and it was flooded out, and they had no place to land. Couldn't even land. And that was just crazy for me to even think about. Uh, But the contrast between Carrick Lake, Queen Maud Gulf Bird Sanctuary, and sort of the far northern central Arctic being three weeks early, I think was the estimate that we heard. Compare that to what we're seeing on the YK Delta in Alaska. Dave Kuhn saying it's a late spring. Yeah. There's not a lot of uniformity in any given year with how spring, the timing of spring phenology and habitat conditions, is it? That's right. Absolutely. And that's why it makes it very difficult to <laughs> well, to, and, and, to but, handicap how things are going to play out, right? But it, 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 why it's so important that, you know, we don't have all our eggs in one basket, you know, that, 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 that we have broad areas in the boreal and in the Arctic where birds are spread out and success in one area may be met with failure in another. And, and so as you go across years, you maintain some stability. Yeah. And just to, another touch point on that uh, Carrick Lake note that we, we made there, people are obviously going to wonder upon hearing that how it's likely to affect um, it was it was it legitimate flooding flooding out of nest sites I don't know have you heard is it flooding of that nature or it was just broken up early and and they couldn't land I heard it was early okay and and so don't know what what the breeding effort was going to be but but the fact that they they couldn't get in there at all is really pretty amazing but even if that's even if it wasn't the flooding out of nest 
The fact that it would have been so early also causes you concern when you think about some of the things that we've been learning from Ray Alisoskas and Mitch and others that are started that are studying that area and analyzing the data. And there's this mismatch between between the, the the timing of the bird's arrival and spring green up. And then there's also some issue with that it's it, spring is advancing faster than the birds can catch up and arrive in optimal body condition. It makes you wonder if this is going to be one of those years where where that mismatch is going to rear its head again. And it's just like, we don't know. We don't know. But I'll We'll try to get in touch with somebody like Mitch and talk with him about that. Maybe get an update for folks. Yeah, that'd be great. Not going to have much, if any, data coming out of that. I don't even think they know what they're going to do in terms of being, well, they won't be able to because they can't get in. Right. So don't know. We'll have to follow up with them on that. Well, I'd be interested to check some of those other important sites. Well, you're going to be at YK and and, and hear from some of the scientists, not only there, but they will have heard from other places by that time as well. Baffin Island, I know, is becoming an increasingly important area for production of white geese, so we need to start talking to somebody from that landscape. And so we'll try to make that happen. Fritz, anything else? Any other parting words? Nope. All right. So overall, obviously better in the western U.S., better, about the same average in the boreal and Alaska? I, I, I would say better overall in, in the boreal, with the exception of the southern boreal, yeah. that, that there had been some real dryness. Uh, some major fires in some of the areas. Fritz, always enjoy catching up with you. You're a wealth of knowledge across so many geographies, and I know our our listeners love hearing from you as well. Well, thank you very much. A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Brian Hepworth, Ducks Unlimited Canada's Director of Regional Operations for the Prairies and Boreal. He joined us early on to give us an update from the prairies. And Dr. Fritz Reed here with Ducks Unlimited out in the Western region. Appreciate his, his career working for the ducks, conserving wetlands with partners all across North America, and look forward to continuing to work with him here over the next few years. Uh, As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the great work he does with these episodes. And to you, the listener and your supporter of Ducks Unlimited, we thank you for your time and we thank you for your commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com.
Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. The next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit campuswaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation, united by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation, take it outside.